And if you would open up your Bibles, we're in John chapter 8. We will only be covering one verse today. We'll be looking at just John chapter 8, verse 12, where it says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Did you know that the world is in serious spiritual darkness today? Did you know that? Have you recognized that fact? One thing is very clear, and that is that no matter how sophisticated or how technological or scientific or nuclearized, computerized or electronic our age has become, along with all of man's efforts to educate and evolutionize himself into the ultimate age of enlightenment, one thing is clear, and that is he has not gone forward one single bit. In fact, overall, man seems to have taken several giant steps backwards. We stand more on the brink of potential worldwide self-destruction today than ever before in our history. Remember that the flood was not man's doing. It was God's doing. Very, very few people in our world of some 7 billion people, people see the true character of the one holy God. Very few people see the depth of their own sinful condition, their own sinful state. And very few people see the reality of the world to come. You know, most people can't figure out where they came from. They don't know how to find their way in this life while they're here, and they have no idea where they're going. They don't know where they came from. They don't know how to get around while they're here, and they have no idea where they're going. Very few people see the light of truth that only exists in Jesus Christ. Very few recognize that he is the only one, just like our sun. How many suns do we have in the sky? One. It's a picture of the sun, S-O-N. Very few recognize that he is the only one who has risen to give life and light to an otherwise dark, dreary, and dead world because we are living in a spiritually dead world. When we ended our lesson last week, it had been during the early morning hours of the eighth day, remember? After the eighth day, after that seven-day-long Feast of Tabernacles had officially ended. Um, it had ended the night before. But this day after, we discussed this last time, was considered a Sabbath. Today, it is a holiday, not today, today, but in Israel today, that eighth day is another holiday, which they call Shemini Atzeret. That's why I couldn't remember it last week. Shemini Atzeret. It's a Sabbath, so that means no work can be performed. No Jews can travel very far. Um, therefore, no booths are to be dismantled. No journeys to faraway homes can be commenced. Massive crowds of Jew Jewish people back in, in our context here, massive uh, crowds of people were still present in and around the city of Jerusalem. Now, the Lord had come into the city on that early morning from where? Where had he spent the night? He had come into the city from the Mount of Olives, and he had gone straight to the temple. And we were told that all those who were there and saw him came to him, so he sat down and he taught them. That's in chapter 8, verse 2. Now, the temple area, with its outer and inner courts, covered a span. And the reason that I put this other picture of the Temple Mount on the backside of Herod's temple diagram, if you'll turn to this picture here, this is from the Friends of Israel magazine. This is the most recent picture, uh, according to excavations and archaeology, of what the Temple Mount looked like. And it, I want you to see it so that you can get an idea of how massive this structure was. The temple, the little diagram that you see here on this other side, is just that one little 
area, you see where there's a number one, see the tallest building in the center with uh, the wall around it? That is Herod's temple. That's this. Okay, that center where the one is, is this. But the area of the whole um, temple mount with all of its outer courts and inner courts, the outer court being the outer court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, covered, now think about this, it's amazing. It covered an area of more than 40 acres. And the reason I want you to see this, because when it says all the people, you might be thinking of some little temple. How could they all fit? Well, look at the picture. See the little tiny people? <laughs> lots and lots of people could fit inside of the temple. It was some 1,500 feet long and some 900 feet wide. Now I'm talking about the temple mount area. Not the temple itself, but the temple, the whole area, the whole acreage. It was just an enormous building project that Herod the Great had begun back around 20 B.C., 20 years before Christ. He had begun this massive building project. It was originally to be just a uh, redoing of the temple of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel's temple. But he embellished it and enlarged it so much that you couldn't even recognize Zerubbabel's temple. Herod's temple became basically a brand, it was practically all brand new. So it was begun around 20 BC, and you know that the temple, this, this structure you see here, was not complete until 64 AD, which means that during the entire life and ministry of Jesus Christ, it was constantly in building. But literally, this, this structure took 84 years to, to complete. And when you look at it, you can understand why. I mean, it was absolutely, that's why the Jewish people were so proud of it. It was just unbelievable. It was gorgeous. It was, I could d d tell you about the limestone and how it was covered with gold and how the gates were, some of them, just massively gorgeous. But it took 84 years to complete. And it's interesting that it only existed six years in its completed form before it was totally destroyed in 70 A.D. Remember how Jesus had said that not one stone would remain on top of another? Well, that was literally true for Herod's temple, which is that center part. There was not. That's why it's taken them so long to refigure how, how everything looked because there was nothing left except one part of the Wailing Wall, which you can look at the diagram and find where that is. So anyway, it had been... Um, in, in that setting, that the Lord's greatest antagonist, he was there sitting in the temple teaching. He was in the court of the women. Now, we know this because of verse 20, where it says, These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And we know the treasury was located in the court of the women, if you want to be looking for where that is on your little maps there. But it was in this setting while he was sitting there teaching the people that his greatest antagonists, who were the scribes and the Pharisees, had rudely disrupted his teaching session with feigned politeness and pretentious piety, using a woman caught in the very act of adultery as their bait to try to fatally ensnare him in what they were convinced was an unsolvable dilemma. However, with just a few written words of his finger and a few verbal words from his lips, the confidence of his critics turned to conviction of conscience and shameful, silent retreat. The woman, the woman of darkness and depravity, however, had been drawn to the light of the world, to the light of life. The Lord's grace had shone into the darkened depths of her sinful soul. And few accounts, I think, in the New Testament would have been more appropriate for the Lord's next claim when he said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Did you think about how refreshing the salvation of this woman must have been to the Lord's own heart? You know, even though those who should have known him better than anyone else, those who had spent their lives studying the scriptures, even though they hated him so much that they wanted to kill him, yet there were those, like this woman, 
And like the man born blind who we'll be looking at next in John chapter 9, he is another illustration of the truth of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. There were those, like these two people, one a man, one a woman, one a man, who were, they did understand their own darkened spiritual condition, and they were drawn to the light of his truth. So don't you think that was so refreshing to his heart, her salvation? Well, his statement here of John 8, 12 was his second of seven I am statements. We call them I am statements because they all begin with I am that are recorded for us us in the Gospel of John. The first I am statement that he made was over in John chapter 6. What was it? Who remembers? Yes, I am. (laughs) You're getting there. I am the bread of life. We saw that in John 6, 35. Now remember, there are four portraits of Christ given to us in the four Gospel accounts. Matthew gives us the portrait of Christ as the king, the sovereign. Mark gives us the picture of Christ as the servant. Luke gives us the picture of Christ as the son of man, as man, you know, the human side of him. And John gives us the portrait of Christ as the son of God, as deity. So it's very appropriate that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired John to be the one who included these seven fantastic I am statements because they definitely point to Christ's deity. Who is I am that I am? None other than God himself. Furthermore, the Lord's statement of John 8, 12 was the first sentence of his seventh recorded chronological sermon in our Life of Christ study. And this sermon we will be looking at for many weeks to come now, so get prepared. We'll be here. Whenever we get to a sermon, we slow down. As you notice, we're only covering one verse. (laughs) But this is going to take us from verse 12 all the way through verse, the end of the chapter, basically, verse 58. Now, it's not a monologue sermon. In other words, it's not like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was the only one who just kept speaking. This is what is called a dialogue format sermon because he keeps, if you'll notice, if you have a red-letter Bible, you notice he keeps getting disrupted. So there's, he deals with confrontation once again from some of Israel's leaders. Now, some of you may say, well, my book, and by the way, we're on lesson what? Is it 89 in your books? 89. The Light of the World, Part 1, that if you'll notice at the beginning of your, your lesson there, it says that this is the eighth recorded or the eighth sermon, chronological sermon, in our Life of Christ study. And that's true. It is the eighth sermon that he gave, but it is the seventh one which was recorded for us. You see, his first sermon, which he gave in his own hometown synagogue there in Nazareth, was not recorded for us. We don't know what he said. He gave a sermon based on a passage from Isaiah, but we don't know what it was. Who remembers what his second sermon was? And this is the first recorded sermon that we have for us in the scriptures. Probably nobody, because it's not a very well-known sermon, but it should be because we looked at it as packed full of, oh, so many fantastic statements. It was the sermon in John chapter 5 on the judgment and resurrection power of the Son. What was the third sermon? It was the Sermon on the Mount. If you forgot that, I'll shoot you because we were in it for a whole year. (laughs) And then the next sermon was the ordination sermon when he sent his men out two by two, you know, to go out and preach the gospel. Then we had the Bread of Life sermon, which is where he said, I am the Bread of Life. Then we had the Sermon on True Defilement. It's not what goes into a person that defiles him. What is it? What comes out? What's in the heart? And then we had that sermon last year that we looked at for quite a while, the sermon on being children of, of uh, God. We talked about being stepping stones and not stumbling blocks and being servants, not celebrities. Remember that sermon, those of you who were here? All right, now we come to the seventh recorded sermon or the eighth chronological sermon, and it is called the Light of the World Sermon. Now, for this lesson today, which is basically just an introduction to this sermon, we're going to only consider that first verse, John 8, 12, and some of the significance of it. And as I started studying about the significance of that one statement, literally, ladies, I could have made a series out of it. You could probably write a whole book on this one verse alone. But 
we're not going to do that. But it's just, it's endless. Like everything else about Jesus Christ is just eternal. It just goes on and on and on. Interestingly, even in the seven words of the, the uh, first part of that verse, before he even speaks, the first seven words, which are, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, even in those first seven words, there is proof of the Lord's deity and his perfection. You say, what? I don't see that. How did you get that? Well, because, think about it. Even after having been so rudely interrupted by a bunch of pretentious, thirsty for his blood, hypocritical, willfully blind, false shepherds of the people, the Lord turned his attention back to teaching those who had ears to hear his message, you know, the message that his father had um, sent him to proclaim. What if, just think about this, what if he had been distracted by that interruption, you know, when the scribes and Pharisees brought before him that adulterous woman? What if he'd been distracted by that interruption and had, you know, just stomped his foot and said, I've had it, and taken his men and marched right back up to the Mount of Olives? What if he had done that? Well, you and I would not have the light of the world sermon in our Bibles. And that would be terrible because it's a fantastic sermon. What if he was fearful that those he had just shamed, remember, they left the scene in front of thousands of eyes. They were very shamed. What if he was fearful that they would regroup and return in even stronger numbers? So his fear would make him leave. What if he was so fearful that he just left? What if he just went back up to Galilee? What if he had, had just totally lost his patience with the situation of just one attack after another and, and, and blew his lid and stormed off? Any one of those reactions or others that you could come up with would have demonstrated what? That he was just like you and me. Any one of those reactions would have demonstrated that the Lord Jesus had a sin nature. But unlike you and me, when we are treated unfairly, and unlike you and me, when we are pushed into a corner that we don't like, or hated without just cause, or interrupted from what we are doing, I mean, how do you react when uh, one of those... uh, telemarketers calls. You're in the middle of cooking dinner and you run to the phone and it's one of those people. (laughs) But unlike you and I, Jesus Christ always, he always maintained his composure. He never ever lost his focus. He never stormed off because of having his feelings hurt. He never exhibited fear at all, of anyone or anything. He always kept his cool, always. He was forever patient, and he did not display even the slightest hint of being perturbed or distracted from his task of teaching the truth and displaying the light of God, uh, the light of the truth of God to the world of men. But this is not the natural response of man. Most of us respond to disturbances and especially to confrontations. Most of us respond with impatience or with anger or with a great big giant pity party, you know, where we go in the private secret closet somewhere and lick our wounds. You know, we just withdraw from people. And we are often then far too distracted to ever continue with what we were doing before we were so rudely interrupted. But if we are to follow him, and what does he say in this verse? He that followeth me, if we are to follow him, then let's remember his example here. He realized what you and I should always have at the forefront of our memories. He realized that everything, every little thing that came into his life was ordered by his heavenly father or allowed by his heavenly Father for his own divine purposes, which ultimately lead lead to God's glory, don't they? Was this interruption just uh, an, an accident? No, this was all orchestrated by God. As I just noted, without the interruption of the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, 
Think about what if this interruption hadn't happened. That adulterous woman herself would have never... Now think about how she felt when she was interrupted in the very act of what she was doing. <laughs> but without that interruption, she would never have, an, have experienced a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the Son of God himself. Do you think in, it, in heaven she regrets that interruption? No, not at all. She would never have come to the light of truth. And we, and millions of others, since John wrote this gospel account, we would not have the, the wonderful privilege of uh, reading it, studying it, and knowing all about it, and learning from it, benefiting from it. Which, among other things, I think um, showed us more than anything else the matchless wisdom, the omniscience of the Lord, right? And how he solved that seemingly unsolvable dilemma of how to fulfill the law and also offer grace to the sinners. Didn't you leave here last week? I know I did. I left thinking how, how wonderful he is, how marvelous he is. And I just, you know, was worshiping him in my heart because of seeing his great wisdom and how he blended and harmonized law with grace. Perhaps even some of the woman's accusers, I don't know, we'll find out in eternity, but maybe even some of them who were convicted by their own consciences later came to him in faith. And maybe they would not have without of this you know, whole scene here. So we do not know all that occurred because of the what men, men meant for evil interruption that God then turned and used for his own good, you know, that's the Genesis 50-20 principle. That's one of the most important, that in, in Romans 8-28 principles that you can memorize. The Genesis 50-20 principle, what men mean for evil, God can turn and use for good. So we don't know all that occurred because of that, but that's the point. You know, that's the whole point of it. Our distractions and our interruptions... Uh, and confrontations that we might even have that we weren't looking for, we must see them in the same way that Jesus saw them, with having total trust in the sovereignty of God, that he is orchestrating them, these circumstances, these interruptions, these distractions, these, even these confrontations, he is orchestrating them for his own glory, for our own good. He is allowing them for his own ultimate purposes. And when we do that, when we remember to always have that perspective, then you and I can also have the composure and the serenity and the patience and the focus that we see the Lord Jesus Christ always had. You know, he not only had it here in this situation, but he always had it. Even when he was cleaning out the temple, that was righteous indignation. But even then, he was always under perfect control. And by the way, before we leave totally the subject of the adulterous woman, I wanted to mention something else I saw. I wanted to share this last week, but we ran out of time. I saw this, as, and it was something that popped out I'd never seen before, and I thought it was just interesting enough to share with you. But, you know, each of the three biblical references that we have to Nicodemus, have you ever noticed that each one of those is followed by an encounter of, a, of Jesus? A Jesus has an encounter with a one-time bad woman. So every time Nicodemus is mentioned, just look a few verses later, and Jesus has an encounter with a bad woman who becomes a good woman. <laughs> but that's interesting. For example, John chapter 3. That's the first time we meet Nicodemus, right? Is in John chapter 3, the born-again chapter. Well, Nicodemus was all alone. He came to Jesus by night to have a conversation with him. Nicodemus was not yet a believer. But if you look right after that, the next incident is found in John chapter 4. And you know what happens in John chapter 4? Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And she was a bad woman. She'd had five husbands. She was living with man number six. And then she met man number seven, <laughs> the perfect man. And she came 
to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the next time we see Nicodemus is what we just looked at in John chapter 7 when he uh, was standing. He wasn't alone this time. He's standing before the whole Sanhedrin, the ruling body of uh, Israel. And um, perhaps he, he does speak out a little bit on defense of Jesus, and perhaps now he's a secret believer. Maybe he's actually come to the light, but, but he's keeping it pretty much of a secret. Well, that account is followed immediately by what? What do we see in John chapter 8? After we hear about Nicodemus for the second time, that's when we read about this adulteress who was brought before the Lord. And then the last time we read about Nicodemus is over in John 19.39. If you want to go look at it, is when uh, this time he's not alone and he's not just in front of the Sanhedrin. He's making his salvation, his faith in Jesus Christ known before the whole world because he goes with Joseph of Arimathea to get the Lord's body to prepare it for burial and to bury it. So he is now an open believer. And look at at John... um, what did I say, 1939, where it mentions his name, Nicodemus, and look just three verses later, and what do you see? The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene. So the next person we read about is another formerly bad woman. Mary Magdalene had been possessed by seven demons before she met Jesus Christ, who cast those demons out of her. So you say, okay, well, that's interesting, but what does that mean? I don't know what it means. I just thought it was really interesting. (laughs) Maybe this tells us, again, that Jesus Christ is indeed the light of the world because he is no respecter of persons. He's the light for the whole world, you know. Doesn't he make his sun to shine on both the, the, the good and the evil? Don't bad people get the sunshine too, as, long, as well as saints? <laughs> he, did he not come for male and female, Nicodemus and these women? Didn't he come for the Jew and the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman at the well? He came for the rich. Nicodemus was very wealthy. And he came for the poor. These women were poor. He came for the strong and the weak. He came for the Pharisees, and he came for the outcasts. He came for the rulers of the people and the nobodies of society. In other words, he came to seek and to save all those who are lost in bondage to darkness. You know, darkness of all different shapes and sizes. Some people are lost in the darkness of religions. Many people are lost in the darkness of religions. Some are lost in the darkness of their own pleasure. Some are lost in the darkness of demon possession, like Mary Magdalene. Well, another thing to mention is that this Light of the World sermon also stresses the word truth. Now, we'll see that as we go through the entire sermon. But that makes sense, doesn't it? You could almost say light equals truth or truth equals light. So it makes sense that... uh, that the word truth is found a number of times in this sermon. Jesus brings light to the world. Why? Because he is the truth. And isn't that another one of his I am claims? I am the, we have it up there. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Word truth, let me, I'm going to let you guess. The word truth is found in the light of the world sermon how many times? Very good. Seven times. The word truth is going to be found in the Light of the World sermon seven times. Are you surprised? No. (laughs) We're getting kind of used to that, aren't we? And the word true is found five times. And again, that's not very surprising because five is the number of God's grace, right? After all, is it not true that it was God's grace that brought truth to this world? All right, let's change thoughts here. Back in in John chapter 7, we had the record of a bunch of wicked men attempting to silence Christ, the truth. A bunch of wicked men, remember they sent out the temple guard to arrest him. They were trying to put out the light, silence truth and put out the light. However, When that scene ended and the curtain dropped and the next scene in chapter 8, the curtain rose, what do we find it begins with? Who is the one speaking? The one who is speaking is Christ. Look at John 8, 2. I don't know if I said that right. It says, And early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and 
taught them. So when John chapter 8 begins, who is the one speaking? Jesus Christ. The might of truth and the power of light will not be stopped or put out by the maneuvering of evil men. You know, they might make a lot of noise and they might seem like they have a lot of power, but they didn't have, they don't have, and they never will have what it takes to silence truth or to snuff out the light of the world. Hang on to that truth because the world is getting very, very dark. Remember back to the dark ages when they really tried to snuff out the light. You know what the truth is too, besides Jesus Christ? The light and the truth is found in this book. And they tried to, and they were almost almost successful, but you know what? It's impossible to completely put out the light and silence the truth. So we need to remember that in this wicked day that we live in. No matter how bad it looks like it's getting, evil men will never be successful in putting out the light of the world. Chapters 7 and 8 of John's Gospel took us into some details about the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, it was a seven-day long, it was the final feast ordered by the Lord for, for Israel to celebrate. And we have been looking at it quite a bit. We're going to continue to look at it this morning. There were two significant rituals observed during this special feast holiday. And one was uh, the mourning ritual of the water, you know, the, the drawing out of the water. That was to commemorate God's provision of water in the wilderness when Moses struck the rock in Horeb. And that memorial ceremony involved the drawing out of living water from the pool of Siloam and then pouring it on the altar. And we discussed that. Was that last week or two weeks ago, I believe it was. Now, the second significant ritual which we have not yet discussed, but we will be discussing this morning, was known as the illumination of the temple. And this ceremony took place every evening. The, the water-pouring ceremony was in the morning. The light ceremony was in the evening. And it involved the lighting of four giant, and wait till you hear how big these things were, giant menorah or candlesticks that were located where? In the temple treasury, in the court of the women. In fact, you can draw four little circles if you want to between the words court of the women and treasury and mark that those are candlesticks because this is where every evening, starting from the second evening of the Feast of Tabernacles holiday, from the second evening until the last evening, the seventh evening, they would, they would light those menorah, those giant candlesticks, right there where Jesus was teaching the people. And they lit these candelabra in order to commemorate God's provision of his guiding light, you know, as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night during Israel's wilderness journey. Now, it's interesting, if you look back at the, John, uh, the Gospel of John, the last three chapters, we have a lot of commemoration of Israel's time in the wilderness because in John chapter 6, we kept hearing about the manna from heaven. You know, he reminded them of the manna that came down from heaven and then he used it to illustrate the fact that he is the true manna that came down from heaven. He is the bread of life. That was John 6. What did we have in John chapter 7? Well, you know, remember Moses struck the rock and the water came out and he said, Jesus said, using that and the water pouring ceremony to be an illustration of the fact that he is the source of living water. He said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So in John 6, we had manna. In John 7, we had water, living water. And what do we have in John chapter 8? Light. Yes, and this is all about the commemoration of that that Shekinah glory that led Israel during her wilderness years. This, so this lighting ceremony was reminiscent of the Shekinah glory and the descent of the Shekinah glory that filled the temple during the days of King Solomon. You know, now in the tabernacle days in the wilderness, the Shekinah glory rested over the Holy of Holies. But when King Solomon built a temple, a permanent structure, for God, to worship God. Remember when he dedicated that temple? The Shekinah glory came down. A cloud filled the whole, the whole temple. 
and that you can read about in 1 Kings 8. So all of this lighting ceremony that the Jews had during the Feast of Tabernacles was reminiscent of that and also anticipated the time of the return of the Shekinah glory in the days of the Messiah. You know, Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory depart from the temple. And, uh, but he also went on in chapter 43 of Ezekiel to say that one day in the future, the Shekinah glory would return the same way it had left. It would return to the temple. Oh, and by the way, when that glory of God returns to the temple, you know where it will come through? Yes, it will come through the eastern gate. And you can see that if you look at uh, your little diagrams there. The eastern gate is also called the beautiful gate. You see it here? The court of the women, here's the beautiful gate. It's also called the eastern gate. When the Shekinah glory comes, it will come through the eastern gate. The eastern gate is boarded up. Nobody goes through it now. It's totally boarded up. I've seen it. You cannot walk through it. You won't be able, nobody will be wa- able to walk through it until Jesus Christ walks through it at the time of his return. Anyway, uh, Ezekiel was escorted into the future by none other than the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he wrote that he saw. He says this, Ezekiel. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. Now, this is he's describing the return of the glory of God. And his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And I, Ezekiel, fell upon my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the house. What house? The temple by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east, that's the eastern gate, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house, and I heard him speaking unto me out of the house, which is out of the temple. You see, at the time of our scene in John chapter 8, Israel was experiencing exactly what Ezekiel had predicted. The glory of the God of Israel... Now, granted, he was veiled, that glory was veiled in human flesh, but nonetheless, the glory of the God of Israel had entered the temple through which gate? The eastern gate, because it's the only gate you enter through when you're on the Mount of Olives. Ah, no wonder he spent the night on the Mount of Olives. So he could come down the Kidron Valley and go into the temple through the eastern gate. That's before it was boarded up. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. The glory of Jesus Christ filled the temple. Why do you think all the people were so drawn to him? Remember John 7, 2, or 8, 2, early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people, all the people, yes, all the people who saw him were drawn to him. They came to him. I don't know why. It was just something about him. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And he spoke out of the temple, right? Didn't he teach the people? And his voice, as Ezekiel says, was like the noise of many waters. Do you know what that means? His voice had power. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? The waters have power. His voice had power. It did. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. That's power. What about these? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Those words had power, didn't they? What about these words? Neither do I condemn thee. No one, or what about these we just looked at? I am the light of the world. His words had power. No wonder the temple guard said, never man spake like this man. So the glory of the Lord had come through the eastern gate, just like Ezekiel saw, filled the temple, spoke in the temple. But Israel, as we know, Israel rejected the glory of the God of Israel. In fact, as soon as he made this claim of John 8, 12, you know what they do? Israel represented by her marvelous leaders. Look at verse 13. Take a sneak preview of next week. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. As soon as he makes this statement, they accuse him of being a liar. 
So, so much for that attempt to give them the kingdom. He, you know, he's going to try again. We always say he's the God of the second chance. On Palm Sunday, guess what he's going to do? He, again, he's going to ride through on a donkey, just like is prophesied in Zechariah. And he's going to come in through the eastern gate and officially present himself one more time as the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy as the Messiah. But, of course, again, they'll, in just a few more days after that, they crucify him. So Israel yet awaits a repeat and a complete fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision when the glory of God will return to the temple. And he himself said through his prophet Ezekiel, I will then dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever and my holy name will no longer be defiled by her whoredom. You see, that's what they're doing here. They just keep defiling his name by their whoredom. But one day, it will all be over, and Israel will at long last know who he is. Well, so in the two primary traditional rituals performed by the Jews during the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, which were the water-pouring ceremony in the evening and the mornings, and the illumination of those large uh, lamps, in those two ceremonies, the spiritual needs of Israel are symbolized. What did Israel need more than anything else? She needed the spiritual cleansing by the Holy Spirit, which is symbolized by the living water. And that you can see in John 7:38. The living water, Jesus is the rock, the living water is the Holy Spirit. What else did she need besides spiritual cleansing? She needed illumination. She needed to see the light, didn't she? And that's, of course, symbolized in the, the lighting ceremony. The, the See, Jesus offered her both when he said, Come unto me and drink, and I am the light of the world. Follow me. He offered her both. Well, his claim to be the light of the world definitely carried a reference to the temple light celebration that would still have been very vivid in the uh, minds of all the people standing in his presence because it had just been celebrated for the past six nights in a row, right there in the place that he is standing and teaching, right there in the court of the women. That's where the lighting ceremony, maybe those giant menorah were still flickering. The lights of them were still flickering because this is the early morning of the day after. And we know he was in the temple treasury because we're told in verse 20. I already pointed that out to you. Now, the court of the women, by the way, was called court of the women, not because only women were there. This is the reason the um, accusers could bring the adulterous woman into this court. It's because women, this is as far as women were allowed. They couldn't go any further. They couldn't go up those 15 stairs there through Nicanor's gate or the great gate into the court of the Israelites. They were, women were not allowed that far. They could only go into the court of women, and that's why it's got that name. This is where this ceremony took place, in the center. There stood four giant menorah. And when I say giant, they were giant. Did I tell you how tall they were? They were 75 feet tall. Do you know how tall that is? That's taller than this ceiling. A telephone pole is 90 feet. It's only 15 feet short of a telephone pole. It would be like 15 five-foot people standing on top of each other. Giant. I don't know how massive they must have been at the bottom, but they had to be massive to go that tall up. And there were four of these, okay, four of these giant menorah candlesticks. And on top of each one of them were four branches. So you've got this giant candlestick, and at the top comes out like this, and then there's two branches in the top. I mean... There's four all together, two in the middle, and it goes out like this on the side, two on the side. And on top of each one of those are giant bowls, kind of like the chandeliers in this auditorium, but probably even bigger because they hold, held 10 gallons of pure olive oil in each one of those bowls. And I don't know how many gallons of olive oil you could pour in those, but massive bowls on top of each menorah. There's four menorah, there's four branches, there's four bowls, so that makes 16 of these giant lights. And they had young priest boys going into the ministry. I guess they must have been young men because um, they had to carry those 10-gallon jugs full of olive oil up ladders. They had four ladders propped against each menorah, each ladder going to one of those bowls at the top. And these young men, 
do you have trouble sometimes carrying a gallon of milk? They had 10-gallon pitchers full of olive oil that they were going up and down those ladders to make sure that the oil stayed all night long, each night of the celebration, in the bowl so that the lights continuously stayed lit. A lot of work to keep those lights going. They used, for wicks, they used the um, worn-out linen liturgical garments of the priests. That's interesting, isn't it? And as the sun, on each day of the Feast of Tabernacles, as the sun was setting in the sky, these huge lampstands were lit, and they kept burning all night. It is, it is said that the st- steady yellow flames of the oil lamps flooded the temple and the streets of J- Jerusalem with brilliant light. The Mishnah, which is a collection of traditional Jewish law, the Mishnah says this, quote, There was no courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up by the light. So it filled, I mean, lit up the whole city. Well, soon after the illumination of the menorah was underway, then a group of Levites would gather inside the inner court. Now, the inner court um, is... Not the court of the women, but the rest of it is the inner court. They would, the, the, the Levites would gather in the court of the priest. Do you see that on your diagram? As the lights were being lit, all the, the Levites would gather there. And um, then they would move to the top. They'd go through Nicanor's or, or the great gate there. They'd move through that, and they'd st- stand at the top of those stairs. That stairway, it went down into the court of women. There were 15 stairs there. This great, big, huge Levitical choir of, of men would stand at the top, and um, they would start singing the Psalms of Ascent, or the Psalms of Degree, which in our Bible are Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. They're the, called the Psalms of Degree. And as they finished each psalm, they would take one more step down until they got to the bottom. There's 15 psalms. And um, there were 15 steps. And let me just read to you a description of this ceremony because it was fascinating. It says, The Levitical musicians stood upon the 15 steps leading down from the court of the Israelites or the court of the priests to the women's court, which, according to the Mishnah, corresponded with the 15 songs of ascent in the Psalms. Not only did they play instruments with fervor, they said in another book I read, it said that as they progressed down each step, the music got louder and louder and louder. It says not only did they um, play with fervor, but the Levitical choir stood chanting and singing as the leaders of Israel danced, and they would dance around in the court of the women with torches, and they were dancing. Can you just see the scribes and the Pharisees doing that? (laughs) I can't quite picture that, but... um, Jerusalem glistened like a diamond in the night, and her light could be seen from afar. The festivities continued long into the night. Two priests stood on the upper or the great gate, the Nicanor gate, which led down from the Israelites' court to the court of the women and held trumpets in their hands. Trumpets would be those big shofar trumpets. They waited for the signal, a cock's crow at dawn. Okay, so when the sun was starting to come up and the cock, crew, (laughs) then these two priests with their two horns would sound a prolonged blast, a quavering note, and then another prolonged blast of the shofar. They then held their trumpets without sound and proceeded down to the tenth step where they again sounded another prolonged blast, a quavering note, and a prolonged blast. Finally, when they reached the court of the women, they blew another prolonged blast, a quavering note, and a prolonged blast. The momentum intensified, and the two priests began blowing prolonged blasts until they reached the gate that led to the east, the beautiful gate. So see, once they got to the bottom of the steps, they just kept blowing the trumpet, and all the people followed them, and they went out of the court of women through the beautiful gate, the the, uh, eastern gate. Once through the gate, with the multitude of worshipers, they turned their faces toward the west, facing the sanctuary in the temple, with the sun rising and the light of the candelabra paling, they chanted an ancient prayer. And this is their prayer. Our ancestors, when they were in this place, turned their backs on the temple and their faces toward the east, and they prostrated themselves eastward toward the sun. 
In other words, they were saying, our ancestors turned their back on this temple. But as for us, our eyes are turned to the eternal. That was their little prayer at the end of the ceremony, just as the sun is coming up. It was a magnificent ceremony filled with beauty and symbolism. The light represented the Shekinah glory that once filled the temple. Through all of this elaborate ritual and all this ceremony, the Jews, you see, were trying to keep up outward appearances with a kind of a make-believe Shekinah glory in the light that came from these giant candlesticks. They were, those candlesticks were to commemorate the Shekinah glory that led Israel in the wilderness and that rested above the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And as I discussed, which filled the temple that Solomon later built and dedicated to the Lord. The terrible problem with all of this, as you can well guess, is that it was their own man-produced light. I mean, they had to go to a lot of work to keep it burning, didn't they? It was man-produced light, not God's divine light of glory and truth. And when that true light was there in their very midst and telling them who he was, you know what? They still preferred their ritualistic light, their man-made light, to the reality light. The true light. That's sad, isn't it? You know, they said that they, they had their faces set, not like their ancestors, but their faces were set toward the eternal. But there was the eternal one right in their midst, and they didn't have their faces set toward him. It's interesting to note that it was in this very same court where they had this huge ceremony, this lighting ceremony, that Jesus made his shocking claim, I am the light of the world. It's not really that shocking. It's very appropriate, and we know everything he does is very appropriate. Perhaps when he made that statement, as he's standing there in the court of the women, perhaps he even pointed to those giant menorah as he spoke his words, and they, their light might still be flickering a little bit from the ceremony the night before. Um, and perhaps that's what he was pointing to when he said, you know, he that followeth me. After all, didn't their four, his, the Jews' forefathers have to follow the Shekinah glory light, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, as it led them in the wilderness? He says, follow me, as they followed me. Perhaps, um, he, he, as he said, I am the light of the world, he may even have been pointing to the sun in the sky. Because remember, it was still early morning, I don't think that episode with the adulterous woman took too long. So still morning. Maybe he not only pointed to the, the giant menorah, but maybe he also pointed to the sun in the sky when he made his statement, I am the light of the world. Was it shocking to the people to hear him say that? Absolutely. It was very shocking for a man, you know, someone to stand up and say, I am. Can you imagine me coming up here and saying, ladies, I am the light of the world. You think I have a little bit of an ego problem, right? Or I was a little bit out of my head. <laughs> but you know, it might have been shocking to the people, but this wasn't the first time that such a statement had been made about Jesus in this very place, in the court of the women. It had, this statement had already been made about him. Not by his own lips, by the lips of someone else. You know, back when Jesus was 40 days old, 40 days old, Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple for the very first time to be presented to the Lord. Now, he was circumcised at eight days old, but that wasn't in the temple. First time they brought him to the temple, he was 40 days old, and it was for Mary's purification after childbirth. You can read about this in Luke 2, verse 22. This was something commanded by the law in the book of Leviticus. She had to be purified. And Mary and Joseph would have taken little baby Jesus to the court of the women because that's as far as Mary could go, plus it doubled as the temple treasury. You see, around the, the uh, treasury there were fifth, uh, 15, 13 alms chests. They're called on your picture, but um, alms boxes. They were actually uh, fluted trumpet looking structures where charitable contributions and tax 
money, temple tax money were placed. You know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to give your temple half shekel tax, you'd go to the court of the women and you'd drop it in box number so-and-so. They were all marked for the different taxes and the different contributions. Well, it would have been in trumpet number three. And these, these were called trumpets because they were narrow at the top and then they were shaped like a trumpet. They were narrow at the top. You'd drop the money in and it would get wide at the bottom, just like a trumpet, you know, it's narrow and then wide. And that's where the expression um, um, sounding your own trumpet comes from, because people who gave a lot of money would drop it into these, um, they were metal, and it would make a lot of noise. The coins would make a lot of noise when it hit the bottom of the chest. So they say, oh, he's sounding his own trumpet. That's where the expression came from. But anyway, Mary would have put her, money, her coins to purchase two turtle doves to offer as a sacrifice for her purification in this very um, court of the women. She would have done that. And it was at that time, as she and Joseph were there, and she was buying her two turtle doves, that an old and godly man named Simeon received a unique prompting by the Holy Spirit to get up and go to the temple. Holy Spirit said, you need to go to the temple. He marched to the temple, and he went straight into the court of the women, and he went straight over to Mary, who was holding baby Jesus in her arms. You see, Simeon had been promised. He was an old man. He had been promised by God that he would not die. He had had a prayer for many, many years that he would not die before he would see the consolation of Israel, which is the comfort of Israel, another expression for the Messiah. And God had promised him he wouldn't die until he laid his eyes on the consolation, the Messiah of Israel. So he immediately knew because the Holy Spirit led him to baby Jesus. Mary must have seen something special going on in his eyes because she handed over the baby to Simeon. He took the baby in his arms and blessed God. And here is what he said. Do you remember what he said? Here's what he said. He said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Lord, I can now die (laughs) according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. The glory of thy people, what glory? The Shekinah glory. Who did Simeon acknowledge that Jesus was? And by the way, this was the first public recognition of, of Jesus Christ. And you know, to establish something, there needs to be two witnesses. So you know who came along and gave a second witness? Anna. There were two witnesses to this first public recognition and witness of Jesus. And it was a witness that Jesus was a light to lighten the Gentiles and the Shekinah glory of Israel. And it was made in the very place that it should have been made. It was made in the temple. So the Lord's claim was not a new claim. Simeon had already declared it. As a matter of fact, so had the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias. When Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied, this is right after John was born, he prophesied, and he got his voice back because Zacharias had been made mute, but he prophesied that John the Baptist would prepare the way before, quote, the day spring from on high who hath visited us, who has come to tabernacle with us, the day spring, the bright morning star, to give, he went on, he said, to give light to them that sit in darkness. Who are they? The ones sitting in darkness, the Gentiles. He says to give light to them that sit in darkness. And Zacharias went on and said, and to give light to guide our feet. Who was he? A Jew. So he said, this one who my son is going to prepare the way before is the one who's going to bring light to those who sit in darkness, the Gentiles, and also to give light to guide our feet. What light guided the feet of the Jewish people? The Shekinah glory. That's the light that guided them. Did you, did you know that when the glory of God filled the first temple, which was Solomon's temple, Herod's temple is called the second temple. The first temple was Solomon's temple. When the, the glory of God came down and filled the temple and the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the Holy of Holies, it was, did you know what time of year? 
All that took place during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, what do you know? How appropriate (laughs) that God again came down to tabernacle with men in the temple. And then after that happened, you know, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. They dedicated the temple. The the cloud, the glory cloud of God came down. And Solomon gave one of the most beautiful prayers in Scripture, a prayer of dedication from King Solomon. That he prayed very specifically for the Gentile people. Very specifically that the Jews would be a light to, to the Gentile peoples. And do you know that Isaiah 42.6 is a messianic verse that tells Israel her Messiah would be a light for the Gentiles. While Isaiah 49.6 tells um, that God's servant, the Messiah, would be given by God as a light to the Gentiles so that he may be God's salvation unto the end of the earth. You see, really, instead of always mocking Jesus because he was going to Gentile people, to Jews who lived among Gentiles, and he was even reaching out to Samaritans and reaching out to the Gentiles in the Decapolis and over in Tyre and Sidon. Instead of mocking him about that, the religious rulers should have recognized that this was a definite sign that he was indeed the Messiah. Because their Old Testament scriptures were full of places that said that the Messiah would be not just for them, but for the whole world. I think they did know that. They knew their scriptures. And I think they saw that he was doing what they were not willing to do because they despised the Gentiles. And that's one more reason they wanted to get rid of him. When the people heard Jesus' John 8, 2 statement, I am the light of the world, they understood that it was an outright claim to both deity and messiahship. You see, nobody but God himself or a total egomaniac or a total lunatic Uh, would cry out in the midst of a crowd of people and say such words. It is to say, in essence, I am the sun, S-U-N. You know, I give light to the entire world. I give not only light, but I give life to the entire world. I'm not just a light. I am the light. The people who heard, including the Pharisees and scribes and other religious people, the people who heard this declaration, you see, they understood definitely that it was a claim to deity. They understood that it was a claim to deity. Now, they may have not gotten the significance of his words, I am, like you and I do, but they knew that the Shekinah glory was none other than God himself, you know, guiding and protecting Israel and later dwelling in her midst. So they got this. They understood that this was a claim to deity. Only God can sanely make such a declaration because God, in fact, created light. Who created light? You know, that's the first thing that God created is light. It's the first words from God's mouth in the scripture. You know, the first thing God said was, let there be light. Those are his first words. Let there be light. You know, he created light before he created the sun and the stars. Because he didn't create the sun and the stars and the moon until, and moon doesn't have any light of its own, but he didn't create them until day four. So what was that light he created on day one? It was his own intrinsic light. He just created light because he, he himself is light. It's even a different word in the Hebrew. I'm running out of time. I hate all this. But it was the very first thing that he created. Daniel says that God has light dwelling in him. Um, He has his own unique light. Psalm 104.2 says that he covers himself with light as a garment. You know, there's three things that God is said to be in the scripture. He's a triune God, and there's three things he is said to be. It says in scripture, God is love. God is spirit. And God is light. God is love. God is spirit and God is love. So what is the nature of God? He is spirit, he is love, and he is light. When Jesus said he was the light of the world, he was announcing his absolute deity, his oneness in nature to God. And all the people understood that. And that's why the Pharisees came out and said, you're a liar, in the next verse. They also knew that this was surely not only a claim to being one with God, but a claim to being the Messiah. The rabbis even said that another name for the Messiah was light. Because there's many, many names in scripture given that talk about Jesus being the star of Jacob, you know, a refiner's fire, um, 
the light of Israel, a burning lamp, the son of righteousness. So they knew that this was a claim also for Messiahship. Does the Lord's statement that he is the light of the world support the teaching of the universalists? You know what universalists teach? They teach that all men are saved, that all men are saved, that Jesus died for all men. You know, they're just saved because he is the light of the world. Does this mean, does this support their teaching? No, it does not, because the Lord's statement does, um, goes on to say, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And this plainly means that the one who does not follow him does walk in darkness. And it completely, that truth completely agrees with what the Lord says in John twelve forty six, where he says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not walk in darkness. You see, Israel would have never left the wilderness if she merely stood gazing at the pillar of light in front of her. You think she'd ever, no, she just stood there gazing. What did she have to do? She had to follow the light. You know, the Gentile wise men, the Magi, had to believe in the promises of the Old Testament scriptures about the promised Messiah of Israel through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And they had to believe enough to do what when they saw that star in the sky? They had to believe enough to follow that light, the star out of Jacob that led them to Bethlehem. It would not have been enough for the Magi just to stand there over in the east and stare at the star. They had to follow it. Well, then what about John 1, 9? Remember, I read that at the very beginning. What about John 1, not 1, 9? Yeah, 1, 9, where it says, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, this is another verse that the universalists like to use to say that all men are saved. Because they say, he is a true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Well, let me just quickly, you can reread this in your notes if you want to really try to get it straight. But this verse refers to Christ and his relationship to man as his creator. This is talking about his creative light as opposed to his redemptive light. Okay? You know, there is a light that he puts into all men, which is the knowledge of himself. He gives all men a conscience. He gives all men the ability to um, have feelings and emotions and to think about the fact that there is a God. He instinctively um, uh, gives us uh, moral perceptions about things. This is, this is talking about the fact that we're all created in the image of God. This is creative light that lights every man that comes into the world. Yet to receive spiritual light or redemptive light, one must follow or believe on Christ. For the light of life, eternal life, is only received by those who follow him, who accept him as their Lord and Savior. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson. Thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you that Jesus is the light of the world. He is everything that this world is not. To the darkness of falsehood, he is the light of truth. To the darkness of ignorance, he is the light of wisdom. To the darkness of impurity, he is the light of holiness. And to the darkness of sorrow, he is the light of joy. But most of all, to the darkness of death, he is the light of life. So whom shall we fear? The Lord is our light and our salvation. And we pray in his name. Amen.